Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. We are just a few short days away from the 2016 Summer Olympic Games. And like any major international sporting event, there are always questions around the use of performance-enhancing drugs and whether they're going to be an issue either before, during, or after the games. And being a huge sports fan my whole life and also being a person who is asked questions about, hey, are these medications really dangerous and is this really a problem? I thought it would be a very interesting topic to discuss uh, on Explore the Space, and my guest is a perfect person to join me. Mark Johnson uh, is a cyclist himself, and he has covered cycling as a writer and also as a photographer for several decades. His writings appeared all over the world. He also has his PhD in English literature, so everything that he puts together is going to look like the best term paper we could have ever hoped to write. Mark, welcome to Explore the Space. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's good timing with the. Uh... Rio Olympics around the corner. Absolutely. So you have this book that's just come out, and the book is called Spitting in the Soup, Inside the Dirty Game of Doping in Sports. I will give you full credit for a very provocative title. Uh, as we look at this, I mean, I've been a sports fan my whole life. Uh, you've been involved in sports at every level for many, many, many years. This is an issue that anytime we talk about sports, we always have now in the back of our mind where and to what extent are performance-enhancing drugs influencing what I'm seeing, watching, enjoying, and rooting for? When you sat down and said, I need to work on a project, was there something that made you say, I, I need to do a deep dive into this issue of doping and performance-enhancing drugs in sports? Yeah, so there was a, a couple things. One, in 2011, I spent a year traveling with the pro cycling team. They were then called the Garmin Pro Cycling Team. And they were created by Jonathan Botters, who raced with Lance Armstrong in U.S. Postal, and then quit European cycling because it didn't want to dope, and then created this team with this crazy idea that they were going to go and race at the Tour de France level without doping. So spending a year with them sort of really got my interest into doping. But as an American, I was really puzzled about how doping in sport is categorically demonized as morally and physically destructive, but we advertise performance enhanced on drugs on television. And you know, in 2014, Americans took 58 million prescriptions for ADHD drugs. These are amphetamines, many of them, like Adderall, the same drugs that were supposedly killing cyclists in the 1960s. But today we're giving them to millions of kids aged 4 to 17. So that was a paradox that completely fascinated me, and I wanted to understand it. it, is, it it's one of the biggest paradoxes I think that sports deals with right now, and I think what you said about how the athlete becomes demonized is fascinating, especially when we juxtapose it with the sport itself doesn't. Um, cycling is such a great example. Year after year, time after time, the Tour de France, which is obviously the most recognizable cycling event on an annual basis – gets dragged through the mud because there are riders who get caught. Um, obviously, Lance Armstrong being the, the biggest one, but it's happened on many other occasions. It just the, the sport always survives. The athletes take a pounding. Where, is, where does that 
split come from? Why is it that the sport, the people that run the sport, the advertisers, the things that are driving the sport, they move forward scot-free in many cases. The athletes themselves inside of this infrastructure of the sport are, as you say, they're, they're often demonized. I think it's, it's more emotionally satisfying and it's easier to say, well, if we just pluck out the bad apples, then sport will fall back to this state of innocence. Mm-hmm. That's an easy, emotionally pleasing argument, uh, but it doesn't work, A, because doping is not a new cancer in sport. It's not a new pathology that we just need to come up with some technical solution to get rid of. It has always been essential to sport, and it's been an expression of the essence of high-performance sport, which is turning to technology to push the boundaries of human performance. So from the beginning of professional sports during the Industrial Revolution, when you had teams like Arsenal, a soccer team, which was made out of, made up of munitions workers, and then you had six-day races start in the 1880s, 1890s, thousands of people would show up to Madison Square Garden to watch cyclists go for six days. Those cyclists would turn to stimulants, not necessarily to, to enhance their performance, but simply to survive. Because actually at that point in time, uh, at the turn of the century, sports medicine was relatively crude, and it kind of took its key from the first law of thermodynamics, which assumed that the amount of energy in the body is finite, and it can be transferred to another body, but it can't be increased. And so they would turn to drugs. These drugs, whether it be amph- amphetamines, weren't really, uh, they weren't commercialized until 1937, so it was more cocaine and strychnine at the turn of the century, but they would use cocaine and, and strychnine, sort of scrape the bottom of the barrel just to keep the riders going. And same thing with marathon running and, and long distance walking. And it really wasn't demonized until the, the 1960s. And a couple of things happened. One, a cyclist died at the 1960 Rome Olympics from heat stroke. It was clearly heat stroke. He was doing a 62 mile time trial it was 100 degrees in rome they weren't drinking water because their coaches thought it would be too heavy and also water at that time you know the standard practice was don't drink water uh, when you're doing strenuous exercise this danish cyclist fell over hit his head and they put him into an emergency tent which was 130 140 degrees he baked in there for two hours and died so basically it was heat stroke and bad emergency care that killed him. But a rumor took flight that he had been on amphetamines, even though there's no evidence that he was on amphetamines. And that's the story that got written, was that drugs killed this guy, New Denmark Jensen. And that precipitated a number of uh, medical conferences in Europe in 1962 and 63, where doctors started to express their concerns about drugs and sport. So sort of the foundation, the precipitating action <laughs> was based on a bogus chain of events and bad reporting, but it took root from there. Then in 1967, a guy named uh, Tom Simpson died at the Tour de France. He was definitely on a lot of, st- a lot of amphetamines. They certainly had a hand in his death. And then in the later 60s, as social anxiety started to uh, be raised about hippies smoking pot, um, and there was just a general concern about drug abuse, and that was accelerated also by the number of uh, uh, Vietnam vets who were coming back with uh, very bad heroin and amphetamine addictions. So sort of all these events came together 
and led to the creation of the very earliest anti-doping agencies. And France banned, made, made doping uh, a federal offense in 1965, France and Belgium. But that was because the French government saw drug-using cyclists as exploited workers, and they huh. passed a law that criminalized the administration of drugs as a way to protect these workers of the road from exploitative workers. Now, you look at America, we really didn't care. We're very hands-off. We didn't even create an anti-doping agency until 2000. And our sports, like football and baseball, had very strong unions. And so there was a natural resistance to having athletes subjected to some sort of uh, law and order surveillance system. I and mean, there's no way you're going to convince Marvin Miller, the guy that organized major league players and revolutionized pay for those guys, to, you're, that you're going to convince him to allow some drug tester to come into their hotel room at six in the morning and make him pee in a cup, let alone do what, what cyclists have to do today, which is to report their whereabouts 365 days a year. It's super invasive, super intrusive, the anti-doping system that we have today. So American sports were naturally not going to go down that paternalistic path, whereas in Europe, uh, sort of that more paternalistic approach to saving humans from themselves and saving them from exploitation, it, it took root uh, in the European environment more than it ever did here. One of the things about this book that I really enjoyed the most, being a history major, uh, by training is that you do firmly root all of the stuff. We have to, you know, we have to go back to where, you know, the origins of these things really are to get a better understanding. But when you do that, that's where a lot of the, the things that just make you absolutely shake your head in disbelief kind of, kind of come from like, you've got to be kidding. This is where this started. This is how this started. As you were doing your research, give me kind of a snapshot of one or two of those moments where you thought to yourself, this just cannot be real. This cannot be true. Well, I think one of the most amazing uh, thing for me was learning about how Peter Ubroff organized the 18, 1984 Olympics. Right. Because up, up until 1984, the International Olympic Committee sort of clung to the mission and the philosophy of its founder, Pierre de Coubertin, who was this French aristocrat, and he built the Olympics as uh, an arena for aristocrats, for gentlemen. It was for amateurs, people who certainly wouldn't train and wouldn't specialize. That would be seen as beneath their, their place in the social class order. That is just amazing to hear when you look at where we are now. Yeah, and so he, and he created the Olympics because he was alarmed at the social disruptions that were being unleashed by the Industrial Revolution. You know, you had working class miners who were suddenly making tons of money as professional sportsmen. You had bourgeoisie factory owners who were rising in power. And, and so these feudal aristocrats sort of created the Olympics as a bulwark against all that. And the IOC really clung to it until 1984 when a remarkable chain of events happened. What happened was in 1976, Montreal got sold the Olympic Games for the IOC. They were told it was going to cost them $310 million. It ended up costing them $3 billion, and they didn't pay it off until like 2006. So by 78, when L.A. was uh, vying for the games in 84, the um, citizens of Los Angeles knew that they had no confidence in the IOC. They knew that the IOC was going to try and screw them. So they passed a referendum uh, and added to the city charter, making it against the law to spend a tax a penny on the Olympics. 
this IOC hated this because the IOC is used to just coming in, putting their hands in the public coffers and taking whatever they want. But the Americans said, nope, that's not happening here. And so they put a guy named Peter Uberoff, who was a very successful travel agent, travel agency entrepreneur, and he ran the games really well. And he, because he couldn't use any taxpayer funds, he turned to corporate America, McDonald's, uh, Fuji, and uh, 7-Eleven, and ended up making the Olympics made over $230 million in the black by the time it, it was. He also extracted way more money from television networks than the Olympics ever had. So when the IOC, who's based in Switzerland, saw sort of the financial alchemy that could come at the hands of a really good American businessman who ran the Olympics, like American sports, they said, all right, we're done with this whole Kubertinian amateur fantasy. We're going full gas with, with uh, the commercial Olympics. So what does that mean? That now you've got this enormous force that's saying, we do not want to be involved with doping scandals. Well, a multinational corporation may say, yeah, sure, we don't think kids should be doing drugs, but it's more important to them if they're spending billions of dollars to associate their game with the Olympics that they're not getting involved in any scandals. So that created enormous pressure to continue to bury doping scandals. And one of the things that happened at, before Los Angeles uh, they used the U.S. Olympic Committee used a uh, drug testing lab at UCLA to test the American athletes before the games. Um, at the Olympic trials, over 80 American athletes tested positive. Only two of them didn't compete. And at the last during the last week of the games, 20 medal men winners uh, tested positive for the spreadsheet to connect the number on the file to their name. Mysteriously disappeared. Scandal avoided, and the LA Olympics was a great success. So you can say, oh, that's so hypocritical, it's devious. But I mean, Uberoff has a commitment, a legal commitment to the citizens of LA who said, you're not spending a penny. He's got to run a tight ship. And this still new and growing, meddlesome anti-doping mission was really getting in the way of him running a successful Olympics. So then we jump ahead four more years, and so we're in 1988 in Seoul, and the biggest event in the 88 games was Ben Johnson versus Carl Lewis, and that was as hyped a sporting event as I remember. I was born in 1976. I I'll never forget those two in the run-up to it and exchanging world records and clearly not really liking each other very much. Um, and then there was the, I mean, it was still during the games that Ben Johnson got busted. There's the famous picture in Sports Illustrated of him, I think, coming out of the starting block. And there, the caption of the picture said, I'll never forget, it says, note the outsized deltoid. His shoulder muscle looks like a basketball. It is just insane. And yet the game still went on. Carl Lewis was certainly untainted. He was as big a hero as ever. Ben Johnson, of course, has disappeared into the annals of history. But the Olympics didn't get dented one one dot. In fact, if nothing else, they grew. Yeah, and it was the same thing during the, the baseball steroid era. After the strike in 94, people weren't going back to the stadiums. Right. You had the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa battle. They were on steroids. McGuire was using a steroid that, thanks to Orrin Hatch and the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, you could buy at GNC or Walmart and or Stendium, which is a freaking story, story precursor. But because our so-called anti-drug congressman 
didn't want to ban a drug that was making them him a lot of money in Utah. It was unregulated. And so, you know, McGuire got a lot of heat for that, but he rightfully said, well, why are you giving me heat? This is legal. This is legal, yeah. Yeah, nothing wrong with it. So well, why are you criticizing me? But I think that so why we we wonder, well, why do the games continue even though there's so much doping is I think that maybe at a rational level, particularly as Americans, we know that, you know, doping, uh, particularly under doctor supervision, is not going to kill you. Uh, if you're taking EPO under a doctor supervision, it's perfectly safe. You can make an argument that's, that technically it's a lot safer than uh, storing your own blood and the complications that can come with that. Um, and that's why we allow it to be advertised on television. Viagra, Adderall, all sorts of life and performance enhancing drugs, we say. No, these aren't evil. In fact, they're so good that we are going to pitch them to you and your nine-year-old while you're watching the Red Sox on a Friday afternoon. What so sort I, of discussion have you seen within the medical community, the pharmaceutical community, as you were doing your research to try to reconcile that? Because there are oftentimes when there are larger sort of busts, for lack of a better word, there's usually, you know, healthcare practitioners embroiled in it. Um, and it's usually behavior that, you know, medical board may not look particularly favorably upon. What sort of discussion is there around that issue? And have you seen or in your research come across, you know, tangible efforts to educate and rein in, you know, medical practitioners being involved in stuff like this? So I have a chapter on EPO and uh, that drug was going, it was in clinical trials in Europe in 86, 87. And that's about when cyclists started to use it, endurance athletes, because they were getting it out of, out of clinical trials. And then in uh, 94, uh, this blood doping doctor who worked with Armstrong later on, Dr. Ferrari, was challenged by a journalist. And he said, you know, you're administering these EPO to these guys. EPO is deadly. It's killed all these. Supposedly, it killed 18 Dutch athletes. And Ferrari said, no, it's perfectly safe under, under a doctor's supervision. Drinking 10 liters of orange juice is harmful. It's the abuse of the drug that's harmful, not the drug itself. I mean, he's essentially getting to the essence of toxicology. It's the dose that kills you, not the drug in and it of itself. But that just blew up. And he was pilloried for that. Uh, He's no good guy. I mean, he was, it was against the, the rules to use EPO. What he was doing was against the rules of sport. But nonetheless, what he said about the safety of EPO was perfectly correct. But what had happened in 2001, Amgen came out with a new form of EPO, the name of which I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but they were, started giving kickbacks to oncologists to give off-label heavy dosages of this drug. And what happened is, is about seven years later, the records are showing that uh, cancer patients in America were dying at a 10% higher rate than cancer patients in, Amer in Europe, where the doctors were immune to the kickbacks. And what was happening was what was the EPO was accelerating the growth of the tumors. And so, so then the, the FDA came out and put a black box warning on EPO. And Amgen responded by spending hundreds of thousand dollars on lobbyists to try and get that rolled back. So, yeah, that's that's how the big pharma reacts is they pay lobbyists to undo these safety measures. 
it, it is incredibly convoluted. And, and one of the things about the book that I enjoyed, probably the thing I enjoyed the most, obviously the anecdotes that are in it are, are great, but it does sort of help unspool and give a context and a background to this subject that at this point just seems so huge. Uh, and that's, I think that's the part about the book that I enjoyed the most. I want to talk a little bit about now kind of the future state when we're watching sports, when we're watching our favorite athletes, when we're talking with friends, when we're spending money, it almost feels like performance enhancing drugs. At least to me, it's almost the the cost of doing business that, you know what, someone's probably going to get caught again, and there's going to be a few weeks or months of, of angst and hair pulling and blame, and then we'll just get ready for the preseason the next year and we'll enjoy it again the next year. Is that just yeah. sort of, is that our, is that our current and future state now with the sports that we love? Well, whether it's the future state, I don't know, but it's always been the way high performance sport works. The essence of sport, elite and professional sport is not sport for sport's sake, sport for character building. The essence of elite sport is turning to technology to push the boundaries of human performance. Sometimes that's material science, a better bike, a better swimsuit. It has been drugs since the 1870s. But what's changed is that since the 1960s, you have anti-doping missionaries who have come in and said, all right, I know doping's been a native practice from the day one, day one but is no longer moral. It is now unacceptable, and it has to stop. That's the traumatic change that takes time. I mean, it took 500 years to turn South America into a Spanish and Portuguese-speaking continent. Uh, and a lot of human rights are trampled along the time, but now they speak Spanish and Portuguese, and they worship the European Pope. So, I mean, there's a real analogy that you're trying to take a missionary endeavor to change deeply held uh, pharmaceutical habits, and it doesn't happen quickly. But what, what happens is, is, unless you understand this history of dope, your assumption is, is that doping's always been wrong and always evil, and that it's a new corrosive presence in sport. But it's not new. And it wasn't corrosive until the 1960s when our attitudes changed for a bunch of those reasons that I, that I changed. Said, but I think if we fast forward 40 years, I think that the anti-doping struggles that we're dealing with today are going to see, seem quaint and comical compared to what we're going to be dealing with with genetic engineering. Mainly because when, the, when we get to the point where a state, and usually it's autocratic states as we're seeing in Russia – perhaps in China, where the will of the state always supersedes the will of the individual or the human rights of the individual, what do you get to the point where you can genetically modify an embryo or through vector engineering change the attributes of someone's blood carrying capacity or basically design a baby that has the, the cycling physique of an Ar Lance Armstrong or the swimming physique of a Michael Phelps? We're not there yet. But we probably will get there at some point. Um, so when an embryo is designed by someone else and then that kid grows up, that's a doped athlete. But they have no agency in the fact that they're doped. How does our current anti-doping system handle it? I have no idea. It's completely unequipped for it because this, this kid is innocent. They have no agency in the fact that they are a doped athlete. 
So I had a I had a previous discussion on this exact same subject with Dr. Paul Knopfler, who is a professor at UC Davis, and we were talking about CRISPR technology, which is exactly what you're describing: the ability to genetically modify uh, at the germline level, at the embryonic level, uh, any species, including human beings, to insert or delete whatever traits the the engineer wants. And this is part of that subset, and it, ob- it obviously is one of the great ethical questions that we're all going to have to deal with. Um, when we look at sports, though, and the emotionality that we wrap up in it, and the love that we wrap, and the excitement, and the engagement, how much do you think people are going to care? Uh, are they going to say, you know what, I know that football can cause concussions and players get paralyzed and we're just one degree shoulder pad angle away from someone getting killed on the field. But by God, I'm watching and I'm going to get my direct TV and I'm going to get my season tickets and I'm going to wear my jersey and I'm going to go crazy on Sundays. How much is this? Go- what is going to move the needle? Well, I think you have to, to answer the question. You have to, there's, you have to answer two things. What people say they care about uh-huh. and what actions indicate they care about. So people may say that they're going to stop watching bicycle racing because they're doped. That hasn't happened. No. People may, people may say they're going to stop watching baseball because these guys look like Popeye. That didn't <laughs> happen. In fact, the baseball boom during the, the during the 1990s. Sport, professional sport, the reason professional sport is not sport for sport's sake in sort of the, the idealistic Olympian fashion. Mm-hmm. It is to make money and entertain. So I think one way to look at it is say, well, no, we don't pass judgment on a classical musician because they're taking beta blockers. We don't pass judgment on Keith Richards because he takes drugs. He still makes something that both of them make something that's aesthetically pleasing. And I think the same thing is happening with, with sports. But I think that could be interpreted as, oh, well, you're rationalizing drugs and you should say that they should have a free-for-all. I don't believe that because I think about the 18-year-old talented cyclist. At an emotional level, I think that it's wrong to expect them to have to turn to drugs, particularly as an American, because I think that is our default answer for any pathology is there's got to be a pill for this. And that's something we've been conditioned by the pharmacy industry, which spends far more on marketing than on R&D. So we've been conditioned to look to drugs. And we have a health insurance industry that likes to get us on drugs because it's cheaper than going to a therapist, a physical therapist, or a mental therapist. Um, So yeah, we've sort of been conditioned. I don't think that's a good thing. The other thing is the 18-year-old kid doesn't have any money. So they're probably going to be self-dosing. And that's really where performance-enhancing drugs can be dangerous. Um, you know, kids shooting themselves up with EPOs, not a good path. So as we get now, we're, you know, a few days away from the, the start of the Olympics and obviously the, the controversy around Russia almost not being able to send an Olympic delegation was, you know, a flash across the crawler, um, on ESPN. It didn't really get much of a foothold and the Russians will be there and we're going to enjoy our Olympics. As we watch these professional sports, the Tour de France just finished, right? As these things continue to transpire, it, it, how, is there a sense of guilt that we should have, a collective sense of guilt that we should have? Or should we just, you know what? 
I'm going to enjoy this. This is great. If they choose to dope, that's their decision. But this is the construct in which I get to enjoy myself. And I look forward to the 100-meter dash every four years. I don't care what the athletes are doing. I'm going to watch it, and I'm going to cheer, and I'm going to enjoy it. Well, I think if you're an American and you are roundly criticizing athletes for doping, not setting aside the fact that it's illegal, but because you feel that it's harmful, morally harmful. And I don't, Americans really don't have much of a moral plank to stand on. Because like I said, with the Dietary Health and Supplement Act, Dietary Health Supplement Education Act, Orrin Hatch made sure he put education in there to make it sound palatable. And how we deregulated uh, direct-to-consumer marketing of drugs in the 1990s, as a society, we've said, uh, no, drugs are good. The more, the better, and the more we, and it's perfectly legitimate. In fact, it's sanctioned by the government to pitch drugs to consumers. We're, there's two nations in the world that do that: United States and New Zealand. Everybody else has said, "No, that's a bad idea." <laughs> Doctors should be be telling you what you need to solve your your pathology or problem. You shouldn't be going to doctor pre-equipped with a solution. So, yeah, I think that uh, for Americans, it's hard to pass judgment, and also. And, and looking at the athletes who are doping, particularly in Russia, so one of the things that was striking is about World Anti-Doping Agency's three investigations they did on the Russian doping. Is in the last one, they said that the assumption of innocence should be suspended for any Russian athlete. That's pretty amazing. And they're basically saying the basic human right that is afforded to everyone else in the world we are not giving to Russians. Why did they make that radical statement? Because they found in their research that doping was a requirement to be on the Olympic team. If you're on the Olympic team, you had to be doping. If you refused to dope, you were off. So that's where they could make such a blanket statement. And so, no, those athletes didn't even have control, even if they didn't want to dope. They had to make a decision, do I want to be an Olympian or do I want to be someone who doesn't dope? And you couldn't be both. And I think what's a real tragedy about the IOC's decision to allow the Russia to compete is that Yulia Stepanova, the 800-meter track runner, who basically risked her life, she's, she's living in exile now in the United States, to expose this thing. Originally, the IOC that she said she could race as an independent athlete, and then with this ruling, they said anybody who was previously busted for doping is now barred from the Olympics. So basically for doing the right thing, exposing this rot that goes to the top of the Russian government, she's been punished. So that certainly doesn't create any incentive for future athletes to, to expose the rot that's certainly happening in other countries. The, the book that you've put together certainly peels back the lid on things that I think a lot of you know passionate sports fans suspect, wondered about, knew about but just didn't really want to acknowledge um it's it's a very well constructed book it's it's quite a read because there are so many anecdotes in it where you just cannot believe what you're reading and and you can immediately see how these choices that were made decades ago ripple today um so the book is spitting in the soup people are definitely going to want to read it where do they find it uh, you can find it anywhere, local bookstore or Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the usual online sellers. And then we've also got ebook versions, so Kindle, Nook, uh, iBook, 
Google Books, all those digital versions for those of you who don't want the paper version. And if we want to follow you on social media, especially during the Olympics, I have a feeling you're going to be a really fun follow. How do we, how do we follow along with you? Uh, my Twitter is ironstringmark. And I've got a Instagram feed that's more surfing photos and cycling photos than doping photos and <laughs> iron string photo. All right. Well, we will be following you on Twitter for sure. I'll definitely be wondering about your thoughts when we're watching Usain Bolt go for the 100 meters again. But uh, thank you very much. This was a fascinating conversation. Well done on the book and uh, really enjoyed having the chance to talk about it with you. All right. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.